This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hang.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me on my show, Carpe Diem, on this lovely Friday morning. I'm really excited today because I am joined by a very uh, extremely special guest near and dear to my heart. It's my dad, John McDonald, uh, a.k.a. Johnny Mac, and my dad hails from Paisley, Glasgow, Scotland, uh, has, however, lived in Canada most of his life. And uh, I wanted to have my dad on my show today, and I'm very grateful that he agreed to do this, um, his first Skype call ever. <laughs> and uh, I just really believe that my dad has lived a very um, wonderful, adventurous life. I've always loved and admired my dad's spirit and uh, truly feel that I'm a lot like him in the respect of being very hardworking and living your life of passions and a life that's authentic to you and endeavoring to do things that are really near and dear to your heart that uh, allow you to live a very fulfilled life. So I want to welcome my dad, John McDonald. Hey, Dad. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, a little nervous. <laughs> oh, don't be nervous. Okay. It's me. Just I know. Just pretend nobody else is there. That's I what I do I sometimes. Um, so... Dad, I just want to, I just, you know, this is an unscripted um, interview. I just think it's more authentic to have unscripted interviews and just, you know, speak from the heart and whatever comes to you. And some of the things that you and I had previously discussed behind the scenes about what today's show would look like, um, pretty much, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about your hailing from Scotland, uh, living in the UK and England and all your musical stuff that went on in London and, and, uh, rehearsing and playing with the greats before the greats became the greats, you know, the whole UK British invasion. So do you want to start there, Dan? Yeah. Um, maybe just start back in Scotland where I was born. Um, okay. uh, when we were about, uh, I guess about 13, 14, um, I was in a, a group, something like the Boy Scouts in America, but it's called the the Boys Brigade. It's a little bit more military than, say, the Scouts. The Scouts are a little bit more kind of outdoor camping, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, we were raising funds to go to visit Amsterdam for uh, an annual kind of... Most people in Scotland get two weeks vacation and you go for a trip somewhere. So, But anyway, um, to raise funds, we had a concert. And in that concert, there was a little kind of what we call the skiffle group. A skiffle group is kind of like, almost like bluegrass, American bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, somebody had a washboard, somebody had a harmonica, somebody had a guitar. And, um, you know, I was actually not in that group, but um, I was doing some singing. We had a little kind of boys choir and we did some singing. So anyway, after the concert, um, the band went over very, very well. And I asked if I could join and if they needed something. So they said they needed a bass player. So that was where my career kind of started. Like I asked my mother if she could get me a bass guitar. She thought I was crazy, but 
that was just the beginning of you know that was just the beginning of electric music. They, we weren't even electric at the time. It was with you know the, the skiffle board player became a drummer and the guitarist became an electrical guitarist and I became a bass player, so electric bass. So after twisting my mom's arm and her borrowing some money and what they call a never never over there, you never pay for it. it right. <laughs> So anyway, um, that was the kind of start of it, and then we be- actually became a kind of little dance band. That was my first band, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and it kind of grew from there, where we were started playing school dances and things like that. And this was at the very beginning. This was like Bill Haley and the Comets. This was mm-hmm. before Elvis, um, before the Beatles, that type thing. So. Um, but anyway, it kind of pro- we progressed from that where we started playing dances and we became fairly popular. And then I changed from that kind of band. Uh, we were called the Bell Jacks, which was the name for a guitar plug at that time. <laughs> so really? I guess it wasn't very creative in terms of band names, but uh, sort of sort of appropriate, I guess. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so um, then I joined a band called the Royal Crests, and they, they were from a little village very close to Paisley where I lived, which is very close to Glasgow. So the Royal Crests were very, very good. The lead guitarist was a chap called Miller Anderson. Miller Anderson has got his own records, CDs, everything. He's very popular in in England. He's one of the top blues guitarists in England now. has his own uh, website and produces his own records and that type of thing. plays for many, many bands. But Miller was very, very talented. Never, he's never worked. We went to the same school. That's kind of how I met them. Um, and through, actually, Stuart Halbert and Miller. Miller was at the same school, but I didn't know him. Uh, Stuart worked in the same sort of job site. After leaving school at 15, I became an electrical apprentice. And uh, met Stuart. He was working with the plumbers. I was working with the electricians. And uh, he brought his microphone in to get fixed one day. And... Uh, I started a great relationship, and Stuart today is my best friend. So, um, he's my uncle Stewie. Your uncle Stewie, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so Stuart was very, very good singer. He just he was just a stand-up singer, kind of like Elvis in those days. Like that would be the neatest comparison. But um, when his voice broke, he he was much better before his voice broke. Um, he had a very high voice, but once you get to the kind of maturity, then you know, his voice broke. He's still a very good singer, but um, I don't think he was quite the same as he was when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Very popular with the young ladies as well. They had a mm-hmm. big following. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we decided, I guess on my part, it became, because we were very popular, we became the kind of top rhythm and blues band in Scotland. At the same time, as uh, there was a band called Dean Ford and the Gaylords, who later became the Marmalade. And had number one hits in Britain. Britain, um, we we both left with the same manager. We both left Scotland at the same time, and it really was on my request because uh, I was working pretty much full time. Most of the guys weren't working at that time, mm-hmm. and um, it was kind of hard on me playing four or five nights a week and trying to keep up a full time job and sometimes working overtime on Saturdays and that type of thing. So I, I kind of suggested that we try and. Uh, you know, make it professionally. And this is about the time of the Beatles just starting and the Stones just starting, the Who's just starting. It was a great time. It was At that time, it was kind of the Liverpudlian bands, the bands from Liverpool who were making the scene, you know, that there was 
Manchester bands and all that type of thing. We became the kind of Scottish scene with the Marmalade, and we changed our name to The Profile when we went to London. We made about four records there. One of them was called The Train to Disaster. At that time, um, we changed the name a number of times, which is probably not a real good idea, but I think it was maybe because we never did have a one really good name, and it seemed to be, you needed a catchy name, like The Who was catchy, The Beatles was catchy, that type of thing, so mm-hmm. we didn't really... So we, we come out as a voice, a band called The Voice, which is popular now. There's a big show in the TV with The Voice, which I'll watch from time to time. I like to watch The Rising Stars. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the Voice went to this uh, Mercury Records, and it was, I think, around about 1968. Uh, we made Train to Disaster, which went to number 29 in the local radio station. It was, um, the, the show was called Mark Roman and the Roman Empire. And he picked our record as number one. And when that happens, they play it like six times an hour. So mm-hmm. it was a huge airtime, no expense, but with a huge airtime. And our money kind of doubled from, you know, like if we were making $100 a night, we, were, we went to $200 a night. So mm-hmm. uh, it was a big change for us. At the same time, we met a kind of group that was a friend. It was, it was a related to... The woman who was running this group also came from Paisley. And I guess we we needed new equipment, we needed new money, and we thought this lady might be able to come up with some money and manage the band and that type of thing. And we get into what became later a sect called The Profile. And at that time, we wrote this Train to Disaster. It was an end-of-the-world type song. It was a protest song. In those days, we called them protest song, uh, songs, that type of thing. So, but anyway... Um, so that was, we were the kind of front for that group and it became like, not quite a commune, but if it had been in the States, it would probably have been a commune. But in Britain, we, we just kind of lived together as a group. We all kind of eventually moved in and then group went to the Bahamas. We were, it was like an end of the world, religious, semi-religious, quasi-religious group. And, uh, after we got to the Bahamas, I decided to leave um, Stuart was still with us. He went to Mexico, and Miller had already left. And funny enough, not funny enough, but quite an interesting story was that when uh, Miller left the band, there's a guy called Mike Ronson, who some of your listeners may remember, produced Ziggy Stardust for David Bowie. And uh, he was our lead guitarist um, for a period of time before we went to the Bahamas and after Miller left the band, so... Cool. That's the kind of... Mike Ronson is, was very famous. He's dead now. Um, mm-hmm. But he was very famous because of his, his guitar work, and he played, and he produced Ziggy Stardust and a couple other albums for David Bowie. So mm-hmm. prior to meeting the process and this kind of sect, um, we also uh, we used to practice in the, a pub in West London. It was actually in a place called Ealing in West London, and we played in the White, I think it was called the White Lion or the White Heart um, pub, and they had a big hall, dance hall at the back, and we practiced there with The Who and Roger Daltrey before they had released their first single, and uh, we knew then that they were going to be good, and they were extremely loud even practicing, so. Right. Uh, Yeah, so that's a kind of story, and then from that I went and I played in a little trio, traveled the world, 
went to Australia, did all the Australia cruising, saw the South Sea, South Pacific Islands, went to Tonga, went to Samoa, Pango Pango, went to, I think, Marshall Islands, New Zealand, Fiji Islands. We did all the cruising from Australia, then we did all the cruising from Britain. In the meantime, I was I was only playing like three hours a night in a little trio, um, and uh, it was uh, a wonderful time. I saw the uh, the world basically. I think I went to about fifty nine different ports in the world. Wonderful. For a twenty one year old, so and I really wasn't much. I played you know very little with that band. It was just a basically like a entertainment band: piano, drums, and bass. You know. I played mm-hmm. bass. So, um, well, it was a wonderful experience. It's more about the experience then than the music. Um, I had basically given up on the music and went back to my trade, decided to come to Canada and all that type of thing. So. Well, before you get to that part, Dad, you know, yeah. what, what's the story about, uh, I can't recall where it was you were docked, but it was kind of like the amateur and the professional musicians all getting together for entertainment. And there's a Bo Diddley story. Yeah, the, I'm not sure about the first thing you mentioned there. It may be come back to me, but um, yeah, when we when we were playing in London and we became fairly popular, we became we played in a lot of shows. We played with bands like when the uh, Hollies were leading, we would maybe be the second band up. When this a um, lot of Liverpool bands that were very big then, and we would be on the show. There may be four or five bands and that type of thing. We were normally kind of second headliners. Um, but anyway, when we played that, uh, we played a lot of American basses because we were basically rhythm and blues and we played a lot of American music. Um, we got into the American basses. They had uh, Air Force basses and that type of thing in all over Britain at the time. And uh, we played at this one, I think it was in Lancaster Gate. There was a huge kind of concert and it was a stopping off place for Americans before they went to Vietnam. So they had these bands and pop shows and that type of thing. And we were backing up Bo Diddley, and uh, Bo Diddley uh, only came with a drummer, and his sister played guitar. Uh, I'm trying to think of her name. Is either the Duchess or the Princess or something? But anyway, um, she played guitar, but he didn't have a bass player. So he asked, or his manager asked um, myself if, if I could play bass with Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley was huge in Britain at the time. He had a couple of big hits along with Chuck Berry. And that was the type of music we played. We played Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, you know, the Impressions, all that type thing, uh, mm-hmm. the Miracles. That was the style of music we played. And uh, I ended up playing bass with Bo Diddley, but uh, I guess, and I knew a lot of his stuff, so because we played, we played about four or five of his songs, I guess. But anyway, he first thing he said to me, he says, uh, "Hey son, can you turn down? I'm the show here." <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what I was, an experience. Yeah. So anyway, it was a lot of fun, and these the Americans were having a terrific time because they were far from home, and this music brought them kind of back home, you know. So mm-hmm. they really had a terrific time, and we made some friends. Um, one of the guys at the base, actually, uh, one of the songs we recorded was uh, a Miracles tune that he, he had teed American albums with him that we that were never released in Britain. So there was a song called The Tracks of My Tears um, by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and we recorded that and tried to release it as a single. Well, we did release it as a single in Britain. It didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it, it certainly wasn't as good as the miracles as the original but it was more kind of british style right to the music so anyway it was a lovely song and it was a nice experience so right i remember and- his name his name was rick but i can't remember his last name it was a long time ago right yeah. what's uh if you could just kind of fill us into, I remember you telling me a bit about um, a song that I believe one of you and one of your bands had put together, and it was on an album, and the album was pretty much premised like the songs that could have or should have made it, but didn't quite. Yes, I think um, I have to try and remember the details, but um, one of the songs uh, that we wrote, Miller Miller actually wrote. Um, and actually, Eddie Hamill was a co-writer. Miller was a kind of talented one to come up with the kind of musical creativity ideas. And mm-hmm. Eddie finished some of the words. Um, but anyway, we wrote, we wrote this song for, it was a group called, uh, the singer was Mike Anton, and I think the name will come to me, um, The Fan Men. The Fan Men were the British version of the Beach Boys. They, were, they did a, co- a lot of copy in their stuff and that style, and they were very good at it. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, we wrote uh, the flip side. One of Miller's songs was put in the flip side of uh, Mike Anton the Feminine's record that was going to get released, and it was the Lulu's, uh, you know, To Serve With Love. He mm-hmm. was going to sing that song. I think it was To Serve With Love, but it was one of Lulu's big hits. Uh, some of your American audience and Canadian audience probably don't know too much about uh, Lulu. Lulu was a huge hit in Scotland and England and she was from Scotland, she was from Glasgow. Anyway, she ended up releasing this, this song to serve with love at the same time as uh, the Fenmen recorded it and it became a huge, I think it was number one hit in Britain for a long time. Had she not released it, Mike Anton would have been the only one and probably gone to number one and we had the flip side, and the money in song, the money in making records is really in the songwriting, right? The, the credits you get and the airtime play, you know, there's credits for the number of times it's played in the air and that type of thing. So I think that's the story you were talking about. Uh, I'm not sure I get the the song it may not have been to serve with lava, but it was one of those number one hits that Lulu had. Okay, so that, and 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 what kind of uh bands has Miller, who is one of your band members, who has he been playing with? Who has he played with? Oh, he's played with everybody he played with. He played. He actually toured America with Donovan, who was a British folk singer. Love and Donovan. He played, yeah, he played with Donovan while he, and, and played guitar for Donovan. He played with uh, Deep Purple. They went fairly recently before John Lord died. John Lord and Miller were very close friends. In fact, uh, John Lord wrote a song about, uh, I think it was his sister, uh, and he asked Miller to sing it, and it was the opening song when they, they toured all of Europe, and I think they toured North America with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. It was a huge yeah. show. And Miller opened it with this, uh, I think it's called Secret Within or something within. But anyway, Miller sang it, stand-up singing, and with the Philharmonic at the Royal Albert Hall in England, I actually have the tape, and uh, it's an incredible performance. He's a wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. And, um, John Lord unfortunately passed away, I think last year. And uh, but Miller played with the Deep Purple. He play, he was also he played with the Spencer Davis group, who, which I think Stevie Winwood used to sing for. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Miller did the kind of singing of Stevie Winwood songs, and when you go to Australia, they would take Miller with them. Played with um, lots of bands. We've played with more bands than I can even remember. Savoy Brown did a number one hit in uh, the United States, mm-hmm. and Miller was co-writing and co-playing lead guitar with their lead guitar, who's very good too. I'm trying to think of his name, but and Keith Hartley. Keith Hartley was a Miller when he left our band. When we broke up, we kind of went to the Bahamas, and then um, Miller left before we went to the Bahamas, and he joined a band called Keith Hartley. Keith Hartley used to be the drummer for John Mayo, mm-hmm. and I think Miller uh, recorded at least four albums with Keith Hartley, and he wrote all the songs. And uh, I've still got that album, and I've still got a lot of Miller stuff here. Don't have a record player anymore. But <laughs> and when's the last time you saw Miller, Dan? Um, about, uh, I would say, 15 years ago. Um, I was going home to see my mother at that time in Scotland, and I, I made a kind of three-way, they call it a Delta flight, mm-hmm. um, leaving Toronto into London, fly from London to Glasgow, and then back to Toronto from Glasgow. So it was like a three-way kind of split of the the air flight mm-hmm. anyway um so i stopped to see miller and he picked me up and uh at the gatwick airport in london and i went to his house spent the night with him and his lovely wife fiona and we um he's got arthritis in his fingers now so if he's playing that night he's got a guitar with him all day not plugged in but he's mm-hmm. got it on his neck and he's just working his fingers doing scales and stuff like that because if he doesn't he can't play because his fingers are getting a little bit crippled so yeah but uh it was just wonderful he hadn't changed a bit he was country boy and he was still a country boy he was uh wonderful excellent and so when when you and i met just recently uh you were mentioning to me that you're writing something currently yeah, I'm still writing stuff, but it's kind of dated, and uh, it's just most of the stuff I write is just for myself, for my own pleasure. I still love writing. Mm-hmm. I've probably written about 80 songs, and they don't mean anything to anybody but me. <laughs> but uh, I just do it because I love doing it. It's very creative. I, I find uh, I get lost in doing it, like the whole world's gone. I just mm-hmm. integrate the music and stuff. The one I'm kind of doing now, I think it's more like a score for. Uh, a movie like it's like background movie it's very kind of um, more orchestral than poppy mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think I, I think it's quite a nice melody and but uh, I uh, that's my opinion I, lo- I love every song when I'm writing them I think they're the best songs in the world and then <laughs> six months later they sound like who wrote that rubbish <laughs> Oh, I doubt that, Dad. I I can remember, you know, being a child, and it would be either a PD day or it would be the summer holidays. And I mean, you always had the guitar out, and you were always writing songs. And those are some of my fondest memories when I think back to my childhood. And I, you know, I just want to thank you very much. Between you and Mom, you know, we grew up. Craig and I grew up. That's my brother. For people who don't know, uh, we're 15 months apart. I'm the eldest, and we, Craig and I, still to this day you know, talk quite fondly about how, you know, we were very grateful to have grown up with phenomenal music. I mean, you and mom had phenomenal music taste. There was vinyl everywhere, you know, the guitar, the banjo. It was just, uh, you know, it was a lovely way to be brought up, um, 
you know, with some of the things that you've experienced that, of course, we never experienced, but it just lives on. And, you know, music is timeless and and the greats will always be the greats. And, I mean, Craig and I always thought, you know, you were fantastic. I remember having the drums in the basement. I mean, so you've played quite a bit. You've done harmonica, banjo, guitar. Um, too bad I wasn't good at any of them, but... <laughs> Well, what do you mean? Of course you were. You wouldn't have had the success that you had back then if that were, you know, well, if that I were pretty, true. Actually, I'd say I was pretty good in the bass, but um, I picked up the guitar later. And it was just, I'm really a busker. I don't write music. I don't read music. I create music and I play music. But, um, you know, I don't really, I don't, I can't read the scales and all that type of thing. I can't sit down and read music and play it. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm basically what we call them. Scotland, a busker, you know, the people used to be singing in the street, you know, with the, the bass drum and a harmonica and a guitar going on, one person, one man band. Right. But, uh, no, but I, I I agree with you. I think all of, all the kids in the world would benefit from having music in their world. You know, it's such a, um, you know, it's such a distraction and a wonderful, you know, sidebar to mm-hmm. flip on your music and lose the world a little bit, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, I I don't know if it's what it's like in schools today, but when we grew up in school, music was was one of our um, scheduled periods every week. Like, music was just like math and English. We we had to take music, and you would sing in a choir, you would, you know, listen to music, you would get exposed to classical music and different styles of music, Scottish folk music, all that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my, I mean, I think, if anything, I think music is in my blood. I'm not quite sure. My mother was a good singer. And we, in the old days, we entertained ourselves. We didn't have TV. We didn't have cars. We didn't have telephones. Mm-hmm. And this is just after I was born, just at the end of the Second World War, 1944. And, um, you know, when people were coming home from the Army and that type of thing, it, we had house parties that were like 30 people in a small room. Like the, the room is probably as big as somebody's laundry room here in Canada mm-hmm. or the U.S. Um, but um, anyway, um, so everybody would sing a song. Everybody had, had pretty much had to sing a song, say a piece of poetry, something like that. So it's, I kind of grew up as a baby. This is all going on, you know, plus mm-hmm. everyone been in the room. That's why I've got asthma, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a real life in Scotland. Right. Everybody had big war coats on, like the army coats and yeah, that type of thing. But anyway, I, I kind of grew up with music. My mother was a lovely singer, and she mm-hmm. I still sing a couple of her songs. Right. Uh, there's a couple of old American uh, country songs. She used to sing the old homing waltz and the Tennessee waltz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still have them in my brain from time to time. They just come popping out. Well, I always remember Nana saying that her favorite song was Amazing Grace. Yeah. And I remember yeah. her singing that quite fondly. I just, uh, yeah, great memories there. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we move on, Dan, unless there's something else that yes, you can please. think of along the lines of music, or we can always come back. But let's, uh, so let's talk about the soccer stuff. I mean, you've had quite a, you know, quite a go with the, the whole soccer and the coaching, and I know many of the people that we grew up with here in Dundas were coached by you, including Craig, and, uh, you know, Blizzard Camps and Dundas United. And so why don't you talk about that and then the Mohawk College and your championships and the Hall of Fame? Um, 
I guess it was started back in Scotland too. Um, I played until I joined the band. I played in Scotland. Um, if you if you hadn't made it in soccer by the time you were sixteen, you probably weren't going to make it. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities for professional soccer players. And I was a goalkeeper actually. And mm-hmm. I, I got selected to play for was called Renfrewshire. Was uh, it was a district like a county over here. Uh, or, uh, you know, province or that type thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, uh, we, I got selected to pay for, play for the school team, be under 12, um, in goal, and we played in the Scottish Cup, and we lost to, uh, Lanarkshire, which was the big, like, Coon Glasgow. Uh, it was kind of a very big province, or big uh, county, I should say. But anyway, um, yeah, so then I get selected for the Boys Brigade, and then at 16 I kind of quit when I joined the band and get full-time with the band. I kind of quit the soccer until I came over to Canada. I left, uh, I left the U.K. Um, around about 69. I married your mom, and we came to Canada. We arrived in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so when I didn't really know anybody, uh, we, we, your mom had a friend who lived in Dundas, uh, actually, it's a kind of funny story. I arrived in Toronto. I uh, had an uncle called the same name as me, John Costello McDonald, who lived in, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who lived in Sudbury. And uh, I thought I, I knew he had a son who played hockey for the Toronto Marlies. Um, I mean, I didn't know much about hockey then. Uh, I knew a little bit, but um, and I wasn't planning on going to Sudbury. I kind of researched it and knew uh, Sudbury wasn't for me. It was mostly a mining it's a very nice place now, but at one time it was just really like the face of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But my Uncle Johnny was there, so when I got to Toronto Airport, your mom and I had $150 each. That was it. And um, we, uh, I phoned my Uncle Johnny and asked him for his son's name. He's Bud McDonald. And uh, when I phoned Bud, uh, his number was unobtainable. So I phoned back my Uncle Johnny. This is still at Toronto Airport. Didn't know where we were going. Didn't have a clue. 25-year-old. So... Anyway, mm-hmm. we uh, phoned back my Uncle Johnny, and he says, oh, he's probably moved again. He moves all the time, right? So your mom remembered that she, a friend of our friend lived in a place called Dundas, Ontario, and uh, very fortunate that we she had a phone number. I guess her mother, your, your grandma, gave uh, your mom the phone number of her friend, and we phoned a friend, and they came and picked us up and... Uh, we met them in Hamilton. We took the uh, at that time there was there was no kind of, uh, limousine service, so we mm-hmm. there was a bus that kind of went between Hamilton and Toronto Airport like two three times a day. So mm-hmm. we got they picked us up. They took us to Dundas. They they were wonderful, wonderful people, Eddie and Pat Wood, and yeah. uh, we um, we got settled in Dundas and we stayed there for. You're still there. You're still I'm your- still- yeah, I've been all around, but I'm back, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So, um, anyway, that was a kind of story, but then um, I, I went to work in, a, uh, you probably know the name, Otis Elevators, a big, huge elevator company, and uh, yeah. there was a ma- manufacturing plant in Hamilton. Um, of course, I had my electrical trade, and I got a job fairly quickly, so. But anyway, through the working at Otis Elevator, I worked with a mechanic. I was an electrician, but I worked with a mechanic, and his name was Roy Bradshaw, and Roy played for a team called Southfleet Go Ahead soccer team, and uh, 
you know, after talking to him, he said that the goalkeeper was not so good and doesn't show up and that type of thing and asked me if I wanted to go on trial. So I was back playing soccer again. So And I really enjoyed it. And then I moved to Dundas United, where I lived. Saltfeet was, you know, a good 20, 30-minute drive. And in the <laughs> winter, it's hard. I would go to practices go for, you know, twice a week practice in the winter or sometimes just once a week in the dead of winter. But um, right. It's no big there was two people would show up, me and somebody else and the coach, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I decided to move to Dundas because they had a team that was closer by and that type of thing. And they were a pretty good team. So so I ended up playing for Dundas for probably 20 years. And then I coached Dundas. We, um, during the 80s, I coached Dundas. And Dundas United became, was selected by the Ontario um, Soccer Association as the team of the decade for the 80s. Fantastic. So it was a huge honor for a little town. Like, it was a you know, population that Dundas, I think, at the time was probably about 15,000. So, mm-hmm. although the players came from Hamilton and Burlington and some from Dundas, you know, so. Mm-hmm. But we had a terrific stretch there where we did well. And as you know, like a week ago, um, last time I saw you, um, and you were there yourself, was at the Hall of Fame where the Dundas was nominated to the Hamilton Soccer Hall of Fame for as a team of distinction and yeah. it was a, it was almost the same period it was the 80s to 2000 so it was a 20 year period we were picked as a team of distinction for the Hamilton and district area uh, which is a large area Golden Horseshoe from mm-hmm. St. Athens to Burlington on the east side so and tell us about the Mohawk College uh, you were inducted into the Mohawk yeah. College Hall of Fame First of all, um, I got uh, a job at Mohawk as a teacher. I was uh, I was uh, into the electrician trade, and then Mohawk had been looking for an electrician teacher, you know, to teach in electrical apprenticeship programs, mm-hmm. particularly industrial electrician, which was mainly my background was industrial. Um, worked at Otis Elevator, worked at Ford Motor Company, that type thing, as a as an electrician. So mm-hmm. um, it was a brand new program, and uh, at the time in the province of Ontario, there was uh, just one license. It was construction and maintenance, and they were introducing a new license for industrial electricians, and I interviewed for the job, got the job, and after being there for about a year, I noticed the soccer team was kind of flagging, uh, and I knew the coach at the time, Steve Calatinas, um, he was a, a player in the local, I played against him, so I knew him fairly well, not really, not as a friend, but I knew his name and knew of him. Mm-hmm. So I offered to help him, because they were, they were playing like this, this season here is from November, it's from uh, September to November, it's pretty much just two months, you play about 12 games and that's it. Mm-hmm. So unless you get into the championship, so they were losing like nine games out of ten and eight games out of ten. I thought, you know, maybe I could give them a hand since I was at Mohawk. So I offered to give them a hand, and uh, I guess I was kind of turned down, not necessarily by him, but by maybe the the uh, college administration for sports and recreation. So, um, uh, so then about. A year after that, um, I got a call asking if I'd be interested in taking over as a head coach. I guess Steve had left or moved on to another team. Mm-hmm. And uh, I accepted it along, and I asked uh, a good friend of mine, Tom Bell, who was very popular. His son, Tom, young Tommy, was 
playing at a high level of soccer in the U.S. He played at Penn State, and mm-hmm. he was a noted player there. And anyway, Tom Bell, he was from Scotland too, a little older than me, and uh, we decided to take the team on. I would coach it, he would manage it. And uh, in the first season, we I think we won uh, maybe six out of twelve. We missed the playoffs by one point, and and, and it, after that, we made the playoffs every year. And then in 1989. Um, we won the after being to the Ontario finals twice. We finally won the Ontario finals. Went to Calgary, Alberta, um, for the national finals, and um, we played teams from British Columbia, um, from all the provinces, basically from Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. um, Alberta, from BC, from Ontario. Two teams from Ontario, two teams from the hometown, which was uh, Alberta, but mm-hmm. one from northern Alberta. I think it was called. Uh, there was a uh, I forget the names, but there was an Institute of Technology uh, from Northern Ontario, uh, NIT or something like that, and then Southern Ontario um, from Calgary. There was a team from there too. Anyway, we ended up beating everybody. In that season, I think we played about 15, 16 games, and we never lost one. Wow. Uh, we tied one, but we won 16. And in our league, I think we scored... 18 goals and only had two against and a whole you know that was over about 12 games or something like that so we had a terrific defense we had a terrific goalkeeper then we had a good team we had a good all-around team and eventually won the national championship which was um, the first time a team from Mohawk had won a national championship so it was a huge thing at the college at Mohawk College uh, which is Institute of Technology in Hamilton but um, anyway, we won uh, the first team competition. Now, it became a huge shock for them because they were a huge basketball. They were really mainly into basketball. They, soccer was a very low-skill mm-hmm. program. And it was a very low-budget program for them. And all the money they'd put into you know, basketball, and they had spent considerable money. They sent them tours in the United States to try and improve the team and all that. We, we were lucky if we get new shirts every three years. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it was a big surprise. Of course, I wasn't—I was losing money coaching the team because I used to teach night school, and because I was coaching the team, I couldn't teach night school. So I lost my night school money, and then they paid me something like four hundred dollars for the season, mm-hmm. which they didn't cover my fish and chip supper. So <laughs> anyway, so and so, what year was it that you were nominated to the Hall of Fame? Because I remember being there. I just don't recall the year. Well, 1989, oh yeah, that's right, uh, 1989 we won the championship, and I think it would probably be about 1993 maybe, okay. uh, that that I was nominated as a builder into the Mohawk College Hall of Fame in the builder category, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, that was a terrific honor, and um, of course, but the big thing was winning the championship, um, the first team, now when I say that, there was a girl, uh, Wendy, forget her last name, but she won a national championship in badminton, but it was a single team sport, a single person sport, so mm-hmm. we were the team, she was the first person, so, and I think that was the only two they had ever won, they may have won something recently, I'm not sure, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's mostly, it wasn't a big sports college, we were competing against uh, huge uh, colleges, and uh, Seneca was a huge college in soccer, and uh, Durham was a huge soccer, you know, Mm-hmm. And Mohawk really wasn't. They were ba- they were basketball mainly, right? So, but anyway, it was a it was a 
terrific experience, wonderful players, uh, we had uh, everything. And the, the staff, because of what we did, the staff treated us very, very well. But nice. uh, anyway, so. So, well, it's, you know, it's been quite the journey that you've had, Dad. And I, you know, for what I've been able to witness of it, you know, especially just recently, like you mentioned, the uh, the other Hall of Fame that Dundas United was inducted into, that was quite a nice night. It was a great reunion. Got to see lots of people from my childhood who I'd always see on the soccer pitch or in the pub afterwards with our little bag of crisps while everyone was drinking, <laughs> playing darts. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was a lovely reunion and uh, couldn't be prouder of you for all the things that you've accomplished. And, uh, you know, and again, as I said, going into the show, the introduction, um, you know, when I look at Craig, so your other son, my brother, and I look at Evan and I look at Lauren, my other siblings, you know, I see how much we are like you with our tenacity and our, our hard work and our per- perseverance and really getting clear on what it is that we're passionate about and, you know, trying to live a life that's authentic to what speaks to us and what's near and dear to our hearts. So I just want to personally thank you for that because, uh, you know, that that's, you know, you role modeled that and um, that's now been incorporated into our DNA. And uh, I just want to thank you because that's helped me make a lot of good decisions in my life. And it's, it's helped me align with a lot of wonderful people. And um, so thank you. You're more than welcome. But Lisa, you know, it's mostly about the journey, you know, the, the destinations keep changing, I think, in your life. Like at different times, you have different goals. You know, you want to do certain things. But, you know, the fun, eventually you'll meet all these goals if you work hard at it. I believe that sincerely. There's never anything I've said in my life that is not obtainable or not reachable or not, you know, something that you can work towards. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and there's no such thing as 100%, you know, making all your goals. But the fun is not in that and reaching your goals. The fun is in the journey and, and the people you meet along the way. And But it's great to have a journey. It's great to have a destination because if you don't, you're going to be pretty lost, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, when you, when you reflect on your life and you think of all the milestones that, uh, you know, and all the accomplishments and everything that you endeavor to do that you embarked upon and, and much of which you garnered success from, you know, is there one memory in your life or one particular period of time in your life where everything just kind of aligned for you or, you know, you got very crystal clear on your destination, uh, your journey, where it is you felt you were meant to be? Was yeah, there a defi- defining moment for you? I think there was, and it was, you know, like going through the teenage years and really life is controlling you. You don't really know what you want, you don't know what you're capable of, you don't know what the opportunities might be, that type thing. Um, and particularly around the band, uh, after the um, the band uh, broke up, after we went to the Bahamas and I left that uh, group that we were in, um, it was just kind of, I was just left with Stuart and I. Stuart was my best friend then and still, you know, still is. But mm-hmm. the two of us were kind of lost because um, the reason we went to London was the band. And then we get kind of sidetracked with this other organization. And, and although they helped the band and although we had most of our best success when we joined this group, it was mainly a communications group. 
uh, it was a group called Compulsions Analysis. That's how it started. That, that people don't need to be controlled by their compulsions. You know that you can break your compulsions. Uh, you know some people are compelled to fail. They think they're compelled to fail and all that type of thing. So I learned a whole lot from that group about self responsibility and taking responsibility and etc. So for me, overall, it was a good experience for. For some reasons, it was a bad experience because we broke up as a group and we may have been able to do something. But regardless, but at 25, I split up from Stuart and uh, I told Stuart that he wanted to go back to the Bahamas and uh, he had he would played in a band over there and had something to go to. And I decided I don't want anything to do with the band. I was very clear. I want to go to Canada. I'd an uncle in Canada throughout my life I'd felt at different times I think I'll go to Canada I think I'll end up in Canada and I think it was very clear to me at 25 and I it's funny how some things mean more to you and then other doesn't mean anything to the other person at the time it was the biggest thing I did in my life was saying cheerio to Stuart right mm-hmm. and I felt so bad for so long because I felt like I had rejected him and I said no I don't want to be with you I don't want to you go your way I want to go my way type thing and it was such a big time in my life like about 10 years later I talked to Stuart about it and he couldn't even remember (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't surprise me I mean people don't know Uncle Stuart but I mean that is just just does not surprise me at all dad (laughs) so you know he said I don't remember that no so anyway Right. So, um, but I, I knew that was it, and uh, you know, I'd been dating your mom. I'd been at sea and all that, and all that stuff was good. I saw the world. I played with the band, had a great time with the band, and all the, you know, all the hoopla that goes with it. But mm-hmm. finally, I decided for me, this is what I'm going to do. I was going right. to come to Canada. I was going to work at my trade. I was going to get on my life. I was going to start a family. And the greatest thing about all of it, it was, I mean, that was the decision time, that was when I felt clear about it, that's what I wanted to do, um, the greatest thing is the you, you know, Evan, Lauren, you know, like Craig, the kids, the family, like, that's well, a great thing, then. that's thanks. a thing, I know, as you get older too, you realize that nothing else really matters, you know, nothing is that important, you know, like, well, and I know I can, and you know what, I have such a, a deeper understanding of that now that I'm a parent myself, and I mean, now you're in the position of being a grandparent, and and so you get to see your children having their own children, and, yep. uh, you know, I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I see my children have their children. I'm not ready for that yet, no. um, but you I mean, I mean, I got a long way to go before that happens, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's true. You know, family, I've come to realize family means everything. And, uh, you know, some of the things as you're going through it, I'm sure for you as a parent, you wonder, you know, to what degree is this going to resonate with my children? You know, uh, the values that you impart, the life lessons, the role modeling and whatnot. And, you know, now I'm in a position where, you know, as as all of us as parents do, you, you know, you're just winging it, hoping that everything that you're doing you know, is the best thing you can do and that these things are going to stick with your children. And even if they go through periods in their life where they get off track or they make some poor decisions, that hopefully they'll find themselves back to where they feel that they should be and always should have belonged and um, and putting one foot in front of the other. Because, uh, you know, and I went through that. Craig went through that. Um, and I think that's just a part of life. You know, it's part of figuring out who you are and, 
you know, you go through a stage where you want to carve out your own identity and you think you know everything and then you realize as you get older, geez, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. No. You know, the older I get, the the less I know. And uh it's um you know, and I think that's it's just it's a trip, eh Dan? Yeah, it's all it's all wonderful. It's just you know, and the grandkids know it's special now having uh, Olivia and Quinn, you know, just to be around them and see them as as, as you probably were one day to me, you know. Uh, yeah. it's just wonderful. It's just uh yeah, life's life's great. <laughs> it is. It is. And in fact, I, I said to them this morning when I was taking them to school, I said, guess who mommy's having on radio today? And they're like, who? And I said, Papa John. And Liv's like, I kind of had a feeling about that, mommy. Yeah, well, we do have that in our family. And that's another story. But, uh, you know, you know, the intuitiveness and the following your instincts and it's just, I, I believe that. I see that in the kids. I know that I have that myself. I know that you and mom were very much aligned that way. Um, very psychically connected, very in tune uh, spiritually with other people. And uh, so, yeah, that's another gift that I've inherited from you. Well, I don't know what to say. You, you've turned into a lovely lady and wonderful mother. And uh, what more can a dad ask for? Oh, thanks, Dad. I appreciate yeah. that. And I'm sorry for all the times I caused you grief. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I probably caused you grief too. So. No, but, you know, again, you go through different stages in your life where you just got to figure things out on your own. But you end up, you know, if, if your parents do a good job, you end up coming full circle and you realize that there's a reason why certain things were said or, you know, different times where people had to say no and put their foot down. And, oh. and uh, you know, and that's usually when you're you're doing the best service you know saying yes and placating people all the time gets you nowhere you end up turn being turned into a doormat so yeah. um and that's one thing that we're not but, yeah um, and that's one thing that's what i liked about Stuart too like he was a little more outgoing than me and he questioned everything you know he was always why 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 do we have to do that why do we have to do it this way you know why do we have to do it that way why do people think like that why did somebody react like that you know he was a kind of philosopher if you like right I was, I was mostly thinking a listener mm-hmm. and I was, sometimes you learn more by listening and talking you know absolutely but uh anyway uh but that he was good he was good for me because he was more outgoing he you know he created all the fun times that I had in my life mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he was a wonderful wonderful man still is well, I hope that we get to see him soon. I think we're talking about maybe. Yeah. Well, last time we saw, last time I saw Stuart was a road trip to Chicago, but he's in Bahamas yeah. now. I want to go to Bahamas, Dad. Well, <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll open you with warm arms. Oh, I uh, know he would. He's lovely. Yeah, yeah, he's like in many ways, he's like a second dad. Yeah. What's that? Um, I said in many ways, he's like a second dad. You know, oh, yeah. just, just because I know the history that you two share. He's just such a warm-hearted, very wise man. But anyway, we've got about four minutes to wrap here, Dad. So in closing, um, you know, if you have any other, given that we're at a different juncture in our relationship and I'm now a mom and older, you know, is there any parting wisdom words that you'd like to express or, you know, anything anything that you want to say? No, particularly. I think you're uh, you're doing really, really well. 
um, both as a mother and you're with your career as a writer now. And um, it seems like uh, your first book was successful, and I'm sure your second book is, looks like it's starting to take off. So, well, and you know, in terms in terms of the kids and all that, that's the most important thing is you, you know, you give them as much of your time as you possibly can, and you know, and you do that. From what I've seen, you do that. So, mm-hmm. uh, no, I I think I've got nothing really to teach you. You know, I'm, I'm learning by listening. <laughs> right. I'm still learning. <laughs> But, uh, well, we're all learning. Life is constantly about learning and growing and evolving. That's the wonderful thing I love about life. You know, it's never stale. It's never static. You just keep yeah. going. It, it, the thing is, uh, we're kind of far apart because, uh, you know, like I'm three hours north of where you live now. And uh, and at one time you lived like two, 3,000 miles away. We're probably right. in, and Craig is in Virginia. And... Uh, Evan and Lauren are universities, one in Brock and one in uh, Waterloo University. So we're kind of, we have to make the effort to, you know. And we do. And we do. But we have to continue to do that. And and when I'm not here, when I'm gone, you have to keep doing that with the rest of the family. That's the way it is. That's the way it should be. So Yeah. And I've always been that way. Yeah. Okay, Dad, we're going to wrap up here. So I just want to say thank you very much for being my special guest on my show today. I love the fact that we've had this experience together, and I look forward to you and I talking about this uh, when we next get together, about what it was like from your perspective to be on radio together. So I just want to say how much I love you, how proud of you I am, and uh, be safe, keep well, and we'll be in touch, okay? Love you too. Okay. So for. For my listening audience, I just want to say thanks once again for tuning in to my show, Carpe Diem. I'm Lisa McDonald, your host, and I go live every Friday, uh, 11.04 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If anybody has any show uh, topic ideas or would like to appear as a guest, you can reach me at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Wishing everyone a phenomenal day and a great weekend and look forward to talking to you soon. Take care and all my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.